Welcome to season two of the Shop Still podcast, a podcast for woodworkers and the maker community in general. With Joey Chalk from King Post Timberworks, Jordan Crawford from Periodic Furniture Studio, and Robin Lewis from Robin Lewis Makes. Hi everyone, I hope you're all well. Welcome back to episode two, season two of the Shop Still podcast. As always, I'm joined by my two co-hosts. We've got Joey Chalk from New Zealand. Joey, how are you? Good, how are you guys going? Good, good. And we've got Jordan Crawford from Perth in Western Australia. Jordan, how are you? I'm good, I'm good, thank you. Good, good. And my name is Robin Lewis and I'm up from the north of Queensland. Today we're also joined by a very special guest from the northern beaches of New South Wales. He's a woodworker, like the rest of us, a qualified cabinet maker, in fact, and he's been at it pretty much since he left school. You might have seen some of his work on YouTube where he's amassed over 20,000 subscribers with only six videos. The most popular (laughs) of those at almost 900,000 views. Everyone say hello to Nick Padula from Padula Studios. Mate, thanks very much for being on the show. How are you today? Thank you very much for having me. I'm well, I'm well, cheers. Cool, all right, so, so Nick, uh, what we're gonna do today is we're just gonna have a bit of a chat about your history, um, what you're doing, what you're working on, that kind of thing, and um, after going through a lot of your, um, a lot of your history, let's say, um, I'm really interested about the story that you have about where you started, because a lot of people I know got into woodworking at some point in their life, but by the sounds of things, you've been into woodworking the majority of your life? For a long time, yeah. <laughs> I think I was using jigsaws when I was like eight years old. Um, and that was all thanks to my grandfather, um, who was a cabinet maker. Um, so he was like a cabinet maker back in Italy and, and migrated over here at some point. And um, yeah, from around the age of eight, he saw that I was interested. So he sort of took me under his wing and started teaching and I just fell in love with it. Awesome. Um, Yeah, and then just spent all my weekends, all my school holidays in my parents' workshop, just building things and making mistakes and building things again and then making more mistakes. (laughs) And uh, yeah, did that all through school. Um, Really enjoyed woodwork at school as well. Did you- Decided to turn a career. Sorry, I, yeah. I, I want to butt in because my um, uh, view of high school woodworking was just awful. Like it was, okay. <laughs> it just taught us, well, at the time I was thinking these guys aren't teaching me anything new. I know all of this. I don't need to go through it. Um, did you have the same feeling? I, mean, I don't think that now about the school and what they t- were trying to teach? I, I did, I did. But at the same time, like, there's always little something that you can learn, I suppose. Plus, I'd much rather be in the wood shop than be in yeah. science class or something like that, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I, I still enjoyed it. Um, yeah, yeah. And no, it definitely cool. harnessed something because uh, I knew as soon as I left school um, that an apprenticeship was the way to go. Right. Yeah. So you found somewhere like a local cabinet maker or something that was taking on apprentices? I found, it wasn't local. It was about an hour's train ride away from where I lived. Um, and it's, it was a fairly big company. I think it had like probably 30 to 40 employees, um, dealt with commercial and domestic furniture, uh, which looking back on it now, that was a really good experience to see both sides. I mean, I hated it at the time. 
mostly, you know, I, I literally spent one year on an edge bender. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. it was, um, yeah, I mean, looking back now, though, it did teach me a good work ethic and all that kind of stuff. So I'm glad I sort of did that. That was actually going to be one of the questions that I was going to ask for, for anyone out there who hasn't done an apprenticeship. So I've got zero background in trade. Everything has just been self-taught. Are those type of apprentices, for anyone out there who's thinking of going into it, is it a worthwhile um, sort, of, sort of thing to get into? Or from the perspective of we've got YouTube now, which can basically show you anything, is it still worth doing an apprenticeship like that? I, I don't think you need to, but the sort of benefit for it is that you get to see like the industry standard mm. and how things are done professionally, particularly within, I guess, the Australian industry. Mm. Um, and it also, it kind of allows you to see mistakes happen as well to like learn from your mistakes and it sort of not be on your dollar as well when it's your business and you make a mistake you kind of have to <laughs> yeah <laughs> Whereas you, that's, you that's your yeah. responsibility you know i'd imagine it'd be good for making like a network as well getting to know people in the same field mm. throughout that yeah time, but i mean there, there are still a couple of guys that i talk to um and you're talking this was when i was 18 so that's what uh, 15 years ago um, and some of those guys have gone and started their own businesses. Um, so yeah, I mean, for that, for that reason, I'd say it's worth doing, but there is a lot of like, there's a lot of sweeping floors and doing the boring <laughs> stuff, you know? Um, but my grandfather gave me some advice when I was going through the apprenticeship and he's like, no matter how boring the work is, just always keep your eyes and ears peeled always watch yeah. what the other cabinet makers are doing. And that's sort of how you're learning as well. Yeah, absolutely. So it's very good advice. Yeah, I, I really like the uh, the your idea of um, what well, the learning from uh, what the industry standard is. I think that's a really mm. important step, and it's something that I didn't get to see until quite late. Um, I, I hadn't quite started my own business, but um, I, I was able to get into a workshop through my old boss and see what they were producing essentially um, or kitchen work or kitchen mm. cabinetry and, and some oddball stuff as well. But seeing what was coming out of, like you say, a professional workshop with say, 40 guys on the floor yeah. um, and yeah. it really, you really go, Oh, I see. Like I can, I see what corners they they can cut and what they can't cut. Mm. And I can see um, the hard way they have to do things to achieve this standard. Um, that really is an eye opener as to what is necessary kind of shows what's acceptable and what isn't as well. And, and you would also pick up the production side of workflow because it is a different style of approaching things in that environment, I would imagine, and you're just picking up on it without even realising setting you up for a later stage. So if you're getting, like you yourself, with your own business now... Exactly. Even though it's not going to be in the same field, it's witnessing that higher production workflow, I imagine, would be a huge Definitely, benefit yeah. for the way that you approach projects, store it, that sort of stuff. It's taught me how to do repetitive work quite well. Um, it taught me how to work on a production line. Not that I need that now, but that sort of knowledge um, goes into almost every project that I do in, in terms of like batching things out. So you might be building a table, so you know that, all right, well, while your saw is set up, you're going to do this yep. particular thing, you know. Um, but as for, yeah, repetitive work, 
I honestly think that I've built probably like upwards of like five to 10,000 draw boxes in my time. <laughs> so anytime I do a project now with a draw box, I'm like, oh my God, that's got to be, that's the worst part by but a long shot. <laughs> the best thing is that you know the best way to do it. Exactly. Well, yeah. yeah. Or the quickest well, way, maybe. I still hate it though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so talking about, talking about the business side of things, um, I noticed that one of the, the things that you wrote in your about page was about how you, when you started, what really took you forward when you opened your business in 2016, in May of 2016. You said that word of mouth was the most effective form of advertising. Yeah. So how, how did you, there, there's got, there would have been a catalyst, I imagine, in the beginning that would, would have been your first sale that would have kicked things off and from there that word of mouth started. Was it a slow burn to get to the point where you had a number of clients coming to you or was it because of your background, was it immediately you were straight off and running? It was, um, it was straight off and running, but mm. it didn't last long. <laughs> it, was, it was probably about five to six months of like just work. There was work there. And it kind of like, I guess... Wow gave me this false idea of what business is because I'm walking around going, this is easy. I don't know what everyone's talking about. <laughs> everyone's <laughs> running to me for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that word of mouth actually, strangely, it was just from maybe people just wanting to support the business, like people like that were friends of the family or friends of friends or, I don't know, you go out to the pub or whatever right. and you're talking to someone that, oh, I've just started a business. That seems to be quite appealing to people and they want to sort of jump on board and help out. Right. Um, but yeah, like I said, a few months in, um, that kind of stopped <laughs> and <then laughs> I had to find other ways. <laughs> and then what, what were those other ways? Yeah, you sort of alluded start. to that in your about page, but you didn't go into any details. So SEO is a pretty big one. I think most mm. of my work comes through my website. Um, still word of mouth is a thing, but it's, you know, not as big as it was. Um, and I've sort of dabbled with the whole Google AdWords thing and found a little bit of success, but yeah. I don't know. I'm still like kind of tossing up whether that's a viable way. Yeah. I've, I've dabbled in that myself and I, I mean, I saw one or two orders come through the, the Google AdWords or AdSense, whatever it is, uh, directly, but it was not what you'd kind of expect for the budget you need to put into it to get a decent reach. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. So I, I, I gave up on that pretty yeah. quickly. But. Well, that's fair. I think the way you it sort of works is just to keep at it, though, like not putting a time frame on yeah. it. Because, okay, with our kind of work, we're charging so much that really one job or two jobs can sort of pay the amount that we put in, in a way, but it's whether or not you actually get those one or two jobs. And it could be mm. months before it, it comes up. And <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people are just willing to put a amount on what they're willing to spend and then cut it after mm. that. Yeah, I think, I think the, the issue, again, is that you can see those, oh, you're paying for all of these search, like the search phrases or keywords, which aren't really delivering anything to us. So it makes it hard mm. to feel like it's going to do anything, but I'm also just very tired with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, how, so you must have had your business 
a few number of years by now, probably somewhere in the same range as me, I imagine. It's coming up to three years. No, it is three years. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Less. Well, way more or less. Okay. So, uh, I was going to say with, with your work income, what, what I've been finding is, um, so everyone has heard about re- repeat customers, and it's pretty rare in our field to have, like, repeat customers you know, within a year, I'd say, because they've spent their budget on a thing and that's it. But what I've been finding now is I'm getting repeat customers from five years ago who I can't I can't even remember the job and I'll search it on my files. Oh, i got to find the job. Oh, right. Okay, you want more stuff from me? Sure, let's do it. Um, and so it's interesting to have that long-term yeah. repeat customer, which I never thought was even a thing. But it's really interesting how that works and the, and the repeat orders from those customers seem to be bigger than the first time around so and i think it's funny you say that actually i recently had a client that got a repeat piece done like literally the day i installed it uh they called me the next day and said we want something else i'm like all right awesome this is good uh but you're right it doesn't that's not always the case um but i do think trying to get that repeat work it's kind of easier because you know the person you've got You've got their style already sort of down pat. And they know the budget as well. They know what you're probably going to charge. And so if they come back to you asking for work, it's pretty much a, a sold job. Yeah, because that comes that comes down to the trust thing. And, and we were talking earlier about word of mouth versus other forms of advertising. I would imagine, and, and you guys with a lot more history in this and a lot more experience with this, it would be really interesting to go through some of your data. The word of mouth refer- uh, referrals... Do those quotes translate into work more frequently than your your new your unique visitor who's you know coming off your website or something like that? I imagine your referrals or your word of mouth type customers will translate into work a lot more often. Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because there's already that right. level of trust there. For sure. That's right. I would say. Um probably upwards of 75% of referrals probably turn into jobs. Mm-hmm. So how would you say business is going now then, Nick? Is it, is it working for you? It is. I mean, it was a few scary couple of months at the beginning of the year. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's going, it's going well. I, I feel like I'm sort of three years in, I feel like I'm sort of settling into it. And like, I'm sure you guys all know that when you start up a business, there's so much stuff to do. And stuff that you never thought of, like, I don't know, just setting up, like, your emails and even an email signature to put at the end of an email and then, you know, setting up a website and all these little things that just take up so much of your time. But three years in, that's all done now and I don't have to worry about it. So it means I've got more time to to build and to do designs and to try and get work in. So it kind of feels like it's a... a a more stable period, I suppose, of the business, which is a good feeling, yeah. But you'd still be going through those lulls though, right? But now I guess you're prepared for them, you anticipate them. Yes, that's right. And I mean, this year, around here anyway, I think it was a pretty common thing amongst uh, furniture makers that it got pretty quiet, probably longer than usual too. Um, But it seems to be bouncing back, which is good news for all of us. Yeah, I know on on the West Coast here, it was rough for well, anyone I know they were all struggling it was not a single furniture make or, or even cabinet shop that was not 
going through a lull. Not necessarily yeah. like, oh, we, we're going to have to close our doors, but to the point of, we have this crew, are we going to have to let them go, or, yeah. or is it going to pick up again? Um, and it's, it's still kind of going over here, but it has picked up slowly, mm. so it's, it's still on the climb. Um, at least from the, the feedback and stuff I'm talking, I'm out of the, yeah. the furniture game now, but still similar area with making big bits of wood into small bits of wood. So Nick, looking at your YouTube channel, there yeah. are a number of videos, a very small number of videos actually though, which yeah. is it's quite impressive for the, the numbers that, or the metrics that you've amassed for such a small number of videos, which is, which is pretty fantastic. But for me, the American White Oak office desk, mm -hmm. that was the first one that I saw when that came out. I think that, mm. that was last year, wasn't it? Uh, last year or the year before? I'm pretty slack on my videos, yeah, yeah, yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, clearly, clearly, it's it's you know it's, it's working for you, so you're not doing anything wrong, really. But th that was the first video that I saw, and, and mm -hmm. it it was it really impressed me. But the one the one question that I had about that was that torsion box that you yes. built for the top. Why did you build a torsion box? Torsion box because well, for starters, the client wanted a thick, a thick desk in that sort of design. Mm. Now, I mean, I don't think you can get a hundred mil thick American oak. <laughs> um, yeah. And if you could, it would weigh an absolute ton. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the idea was to make it hollow. Um, and then I could sort of toss up the ideas of just using a veneer. Um, but I don't know, I, I kind of don't like using veneers for, for like tabletops because it can just get ruined super easily. Um, so I don't know, I just kind of thought, well, we'll give this a go. Um, it kind of goes against the standard sort of uh, perception of how you would glue a top together um, because of movement. Mm. But I mean, I know the clients, that table is like a year or two old and it's still going strong. Um, yeah. So I think the idea of using that flexible, um, the silicon sort of adhesive to glue it all together was a pretty viable way to get around that issue. <laughs> I thought it was genius when I saw it. I just about fell off my chair. I was like, <laughs> that, is the, that is the smartest thing I've ever seen for that kind of joinery uh, to compensate for movement. Uh, yeah. But man, that is some smart thinking. And you also have to keep in mind as well that 10, that was like from memory, it was between eight to 10 mil thick oak that I'd glued down as well, I think. Yeah. Um, so that's also going to take out a little bit of the sort of shrinkage and everything too. Still definitely going to do it, but I think it seems like all the bases that I tried to cover seem to work. Um, and it's yeah, still looking good. I was hoping you were going to drop some, some of that cabinet or that apprenticeship knowledge on us because, yeah, I've, I've never seen that, that done like that before. I, my first thought was maybe from a from a, uh, a, a rigidity perspective because you you seem to, the, you know, it didn't have your traditional rails like you would see mm. on a normal desk. There was a lot of cantilevering going on. I wondered if the torsion box side of it was trying to, you know, keep that rigid. Yeah, that, that, as, well. that as well. Because you want to keep it lightweight too. Um, and that torsion box style, I mean, that's, that's proven. That's an incredibly strong way. Once you sandwich something over that, it's not going anywhere um mm -hmm. 
And also, you have to keep in mind that that draw box is going to weaken the structure, or that opening for the draw box will weaken the structure quite massively. So having that torsion style going around it really helps to solidify the area that's void, almost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's the same... So for my surfboard stuff, it's all torsion boxes and people mm. are blown away yeah, exactly. by them thinking, oh, are these going to be stronger than a fiberglass board? And I say, well, yeah, it's going to be 10 times stronger because it's a torsion box and no one kind of can get that concept that something that's so thin of material makeup can be so strong. And that, that gained rigidity and just flexibility with it is quite quite mind-blowing when you start yeah. experimenting yeah. with it anyway. I assume, though, that those when you are doing a torsion box like that, those joins have to be so incredibly tight because any movements and then you, it's, yeah. it's for nothing, basically. I mean, if those joints aren't up against... So obviously a torsion box is going to consist of some long rails with some short ones in between it. If the ones in between aren't secured strongly to the long ones, they're just going to break and they're essentially flex. useless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's good to hear that it's still the table's still going. I mean, that's pretty... That's a, have you actually seen it... Yeah, yourself. Yeah, it'd be a bit, bit, really bit of a worry if it wasn't going after just two years. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, we got this heirloom piece of furniture, but it's falling apart. Uh, <laughs> it's a, a good uh, segue, Matt, perhaps into um, how you guarantee pieces like that, or do you? What do you give to the client mm, to say? Yeah. Um, this is meant to last for, what, five years, 20 years, 50? For pieces like that, because it is a little experimental, I suppose. Yeah. Um, that's just sort of like, all right, if anything goes wrong, whenever, I'll, I'll fix it, you know. Um, obviously, I've explained to them, you know, the process and everything. But like I said, I, I do know them. Um, they do trust me. So I don't know if I'd do that with someone completely new. No. What about other generally, generally your furniture pieces? <clears throat> do you offer or tell the clients? I, I, I guess I ask because I used to get it a lot. People saying, "Oh, what's what's your guarantee?" But mm. just about no one asks anymore. And no. Um, no. my reply has always been for solid timber furniture, it's a lifetime guarantee. Um, and if something breaks, I'll fix it. Um, but because but for anything where I use plywoods or veneers, there's catches around who actually glued those panels together. I don't mm. know what they did. So there's a possibility that something might delaminate that I didn't have anything to do with. But um, so it, do you offer, have you got anything like that? I don't, no. I, I need to, it'd be good to have something written down on the website as a guarantee, uh, whether it's a time frame of, say, a year or so or uh, whatever that is. Um, I'm not exactly sure, but I think I've probably been asked that once before. Right. Um, out of the three years, and even like out of other places that I've worked, it's not a common question. But th that's where, like, how, how do you get around that? Like, scratches. I mean, scratches aren't yeah. going to be a manufacturer's fault. Um, that's right. So it'd be certain things, like you said, like delaminating or whatever, but. Yeah, it's definitely something that needs to be given more thought. and it, It's definitely a trick because uh, certainly here, and I imagine Australia has got a similar set of legal rules. We have something called the Consumer Guarantees Act where anything someone produces for sale has to be fit for purpose for, I think the minimum is 10 years. Like you can't sell something 
to someone mm. and have it break immediately. Right. And so there's a certain amount. And so I'm not actually even legally allowed to offer a guarantee less than that. So that's when I actually kind of stopped advertising that I guaranteed stuff right. because yep. it's already covered legally. And if, if there really is an issue, uh, it's already there's already a system in place to deal with that um, that everyone has to abide by. But how do you how do you decipher whether that was the, you know the person's woken up one morning and it's just fallen to pieces for yep. no apparent reason? Or in that example that you used last season where someone put a dehumidifier right next to their, yeah. their, their wardrobe and the thing exploded. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do you, because I can imagine walking past a table and kicking a table leg accidentally and the whole thing breaks off. Now, how do you determine? Well, for me, like a, a snapped, a good one is a snapped chair leg. If the chair leg snaps not at a joint, like for whatever reason, usually it's pretty obvious that someone's been swinging back on the chair mm. or jumped on it and caused undue stress onto the timber and it snapped that's nothing to do with the joinery i'll fix it but you'll i'll charge you for yeah. it now if the mortise and tenon comes apart because there's no glue in there or whatever then that's my fault and i'll probably have to rebuild the chair mm. for free so you've never had a you've never had a problem trying to work that out it's always immediate well i've never had anyone come helps. back to be honest really um I've never had that happen, and that's also a reason why I kind of stopped advertising the guarantee thing because it's actually nothing really tends to go wrong that much. It makes you look like you're covering your bases for what's what's happened in the past. Almost, almost. It's kind of like yeah, if you put a limited guarantee on things, sometimes it could look like you're trying to cover your ass. <laughs> so. But it is always good to be safe, though, with some stupid things. Like people will try claim anything they can. So to have something written down, I think, is a good idea, but it is, I understand, the, it, it kind of makes you look like you're covering yourself from past experiences or something which people might get the wrong idea from. I mean, if there's a, if there's a tire track over it, you know someone's probably reversed over it, and that's not going to be covered, I guess. So. I think, for me, I really, if I have a really big job come through, like I did a $30,000 kitchen a while back, and I really made sure I had things written down the quote everything was very formal because you know i don't have thirty thousand kicking around in my bank and uh, i don't want to be liable for stuff that's not my fault so definitely covered myself there and i would say in general i would say any job that's worth more than 10k i, I would probably be very careful about wording and quoting i delivered two projects this weekend and Whenever I do that delivery, the next couple of days afterwards, <laughs> I'm just nervous. I'm just sitting there. I'm like, when am I going to get this phone call? Just waiting you don't for want this the email. You don't want to look <laughs> yeah. at your emails. I, I am so nervous when I was like just before delivering. If I was delivering the piece, my heart would be racing. I'd have like the cold sweats. Like, what if they don't like? <laughs> and it, it was. It was the most stressful part of running a business. Yeah, I always get a bit nervous before an install because you're in somebody's home. You don't want to do anything to, you know, you don't want to drop a tool on their hardwood floors or anything, you know. Just so That's many more variables one. come up. The, the worst worst thing I did, I just made this base for a marble top counter, which was being delivered by the, the Masons the same day that I was dropping it off. And I was really careful bringing the, bringing the base in this tiny little corridor and getting it just right because it was a close to 200 kilo top. 
And then when the delivery guys just come in with their dollies, hitting it into walls, smashing the place up, <laughs> I felt really good. Until I realized they're probably just going to drop this thing from about a foot onto this like timber base that I've made, and it's going to just go squat. <laughs> so Nick, do you, do, have you done some of those sort of high profile, well, I say high profile, what I really mean is those expensive types of jobs where you've delivered them, or is that more... Because I know you said you've talked about doing kitchen installs and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, which I imagine on a commercial level would be quite expensive. But when you were running your own business, have you done some quite expensive installs or builds? Yeah, um, I have. Um, not not so not on like a commercial level or anything, but uh, some fairly expensive ones, like fitting out a bar, or um, yeah, just some like really detailed sort of furniture for a house or inbuilts. I find generally your inbuilt furniture, like wardrobes or whatever, um, it's good money. You know, it's hard work, mm. but you get paid for it. So I'm down for those ones, but I kind of yeah. don't see that as like a something like viable for the future. If I want to maintain like running this business on my own, I need to watch out for my back and... <laughs> All that kind of stuff, you know. That's kind of why I asked because I'm still transitioning into this. So I'm, I'm still doing this part time. But if someone like Joey, you were talking about for, for orders that are $10,000 or more, like I don't think I have the nuts yet to do a job for $10,000 or more. So, yeah. So how do you manage with those expensive projects to, to say, well, I'm the guy for the job and, and it's got to be done right, I guess. Are you asking me? <laughs> well, I, well, anyone, really, I guess, I I'll, guess. I'll jump in real quick and say that anytime you've got a really, I won't quote a job if I'm not comfortable that I can mm. yep. do the aspects of the job. And generally, most jobs, there's one part of it which makes it a specialty job and that's why they've come to you. The rest of it is fairly ordinary cabinetry or whatever but there's one detail they want that no one else seems to be able to do and then that's why they've come to me to quote the job and as long as I am fairly confident and I can come up with a a solution pretty quickly about how I might go about this one little detail, after that it's all just kind of, there's a process you buy the materials, you've Mm -hmm. got to make a carcass you've got to, and you just work your way through the job and and it's just a matter of learning which process works best and yeah. sticking to your guns and, and then it's just clogging your way through mm-hmm. the job. Yep. So the, the next video I wanted to have a look at was the, the, um, the custom bed with mm. side tables that you made to look like a longboard, yep. which was a, it was funny, I didn't actually read the brief. The, I watched the video and I went, wow, that looks exactly like a surfboard and then looked further down and that was the, the brief. Yeah. So <laughs> you, in my eyes, you nailed it, which is great. But there's a, there's a tool that pops up in that video mm-hmm. and it's in a couple of your other ones. It's that, that it looks like a CNC uh, bed. Yeah. yeah. But it's manually operated. Yes, please tell us. Is that what that was? It's like it, but I think it's bigger, to be honest. Uh, so it's called a Slab Master. Um, it's a machine that's essentially just... I get a lot of questions about it, but I tend not to provide too much info because I think it's just made out of someone's garage. It, right. It's not It's not like a Makita tool or anything like that. You know? Yeah, I did think it looked a bit homemade. I was impressed. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but essentially it's got a... Uh, I think it's like a 200 mil cutter head on it. Um, so it's essentially just a massive 200 mil router. router. Yeah. 
Yeah. Which is so the actual the actual router, the motor itself, is that is that just a stock router or is that all custom? As no, well? that's all custom too. So there is a cutter head on it that has, um, I think, like probably eight of those carbide tip uh, little blades that you get in like your um, spiral sort of thicknesses and everything. Yep. Um, and yes, essentially two hundred mil diameter with those on the outer edges. Um, and it just chews through. And then the bonus about it is that you can attach a sanding plate to it as well. So it turns right. into a sander that you can essentially sand 1,300 wide, I think, and up to four metres long. Yeah. Because I've only seen you use it as uh, like a glue-up base, and which seems like a really, really good idea <laughs> for that. Um, I haven't actually seen you use it as a surfacer. Do you use it to like flatten off big... Plants, yeah, all the time. Ups, like That's one of the stuff. most um, used tools that I have oh, awesome. as well. Because say you're doing a tabletop, um, instead of running, say, eight boards over a jointer, you can do them all at the same time. You just clamp them down at the table and flatten one right. face and then chuck it through a thickener and you're good to glue up. Wow. And then also having that flat bed as a glue-up table just makes life so much easier. Yeah. 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 And and the actual setting it up, because obviously that's got to be millimeter perfect, was there a lot, I mean, are the feet adjustable? Was there a lot of adjustments or is it made flat and you just had there, to shoot it? It's all adjustable. There's a lot of adjustments to do. Um, and it's been three years now and it probably needs some readjusting. Um, but it's, you kind of work around things as well. I mean, you use it to flatten the face and then, I mean, my thickness are, comes out pretty smooth. You can essentially hit those boards with 120 grit sandpaper and get rid of any machine marks, you know. So a combination of different machines work together like anyone's shop. You kind of just figure it out on what your sort of process is. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it works very well. It's one of the most machine, one of the machines I use the most. Um, just takes up a lot of space. And I want to get a CNC machine and I've got nowhere to put it. <laughs> I, I I have a full size CNC in my workshop, but it's it's not mine. It's my father-in-law's, but it's here, so I can use it. Um, I would rather have your manual version, and um, then because I don't know, have you used? Have you got a small CNC or or anything? I don't know. Because I used to the, operate one, and I the time. The time oh you used to operate it. Yeah. Did you used to do the drawings? No. Or? I was just a guy that put okay. the board on and pushed a button. Right. So it seemed pretty yeah. simple. <laughs> because it's the my, in my experience it's getting those drawings right yeah. for the CNC. Yeah. You you could take a whole day and I've actually I've, I've proved this in uh, just in my own time where um, I'd have my father in law working on the drawings for a cut. And I'd go and do it all manually in the other end of the workshop. Right, okay. And half the time it took him to draw it. Uh, I could do it manually, like using uh, router, te- router jigs and templating and stuff like that. Um, it's so time consuming to get a good drawing done. So it makes a lot of sense when you're doing multiple That's things. That's a good point. And could, commercial type things. One of the main things I'd use um, it for is templates um, to just knock out yeah, templates. But right. if it's going to take you the same amount of time. So. <laughs> so cutting out essentially 2D shapes is very easy. And you can just draw a shape, put a curve on it, cut that shape out, and you've got your template. That's pretty quick. Uh, when you're doing more complex things uh, on CNC, it can just be hours and hours of 
drawing and testing, make sure it's going to cut what you want. You know, it's, there's a lot of, and, and so I would, after seeing that process in my own workshop, I would rather have your manual version where I can just throw a piece of wood on, flatten it off, and it's done in, you know, 10 minutes. Well, I feel better about it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'll, I'll do you a swap. I, I, I'm kind of on the different side of that because I don't think it's that hard if you're just doing 2D. Like, what? No, 2D. That, that's easy. Right. It's, and the machine configuration, once you have it, you load up the profile. But when it does come to those more complex, especially if you're doing more than just 2D shapes and you're starting to get into that third axis, it's invaluable, I think. But, yeah, if it's only for templates... Maybe a, maybe a laser. I'll show you guys. You, people listening can't see this, but you guys might be able to see. I've got these uh, wooden jars. Yeah, cool. That we've been making making for a client on the CNC. This is a lid that screws on to a 100 mil round jar, and they're going to be used for putting um, cosmetics in. And we have probably put 80 hours into drawing this. Wow. And Jeez. getting it. And then and getting the cut path right and um, getting all the tool changes in the right place. Um, it's outrageous how difficult it is to make this little wooden jar. But now that we have it, we can pump them out 100 a week. And that's the plan from here on in. But um, luckily, the clients have, are paying for it all. But man, that's a lot of shagging around. <laughs> is, that a, is that a solid piece of wood there, Joe? So it's not... So it actually cuts the in, again, for those of you um, who are listening and can't see it, it's actually, what's that, about 50, 30, 50 um, mil deep? It's, it's a piece of 50 mil thick stock. And right. we and been hollowed uh, out. We joint the back and then screw that, say a piece of 150 by 50 by say two meters long, screw that down onto the CNC bed. And then the, the CNC cuts out the jar, does the um, threading on it, does the outside profile. And then all we have to do is a little hand sanding um, when it comes off the machine. All right. Yeah, so that's, yeah, when you're batching them out, it makes sense. But otherwise, yeah, it's a bit, um, yeah, I just think from the, just from what you see on, on YouTube, which again, obviously all of that, all of that work is cut out of the video, all of that <laughs> prep. It just looks like you just throw wood at it yeah. and out comes a masterpiece. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of the one of the um, the local YouTubers here in Townsville, his name's um, Scott Turner from For Me Industrious. He's recently got a CNC machine, and he says, while it did take him a while to get into it in terms of feed rate, the correct bit, that kind of thing, but once you get through that hurdle, then it's actually not too bad. He said that was the hardest bit for him is the number of bits that he just tore through <laughs> because the feed rate was wrong or, or whatever but right. yeah nick hopefully hopefully that'll be something that we'll we'll see on the the channel soon hopefully yeah, <laughs> yeah that'd be great um so talking about um adding tools to your shop you have a exceptionally tidy shop well, a very clean <laughs> shop. It's not always. <laughs> well, well that, that's what I was going to ask. Are you, are you one of those woodworkers who you pride yourself on that? Or is that a, a, a once every six months clean no, up and then you I, shoot um, the video? I pride myself on my shop. So I tend to clean up every second or third job that I do. Um, I'm a bit of a neat freak, if you couldn't tell. 
from my tool wall and everything. <laughs> um, so I try to keep it tidy. I mean, it's an absolute mess now, um, but that's pretty standard in anyone's shop when you're halfway through a project. Um, but yeah, I kind of find I've worked in enough shops that, you know, everything's so disorganized and you end up spending 10 minutes trying to find a tool and that's a waste of time. You've got to move materials to be able to use a thicknesser and all that kind of stuff. That's the worst thing. Yeah, it sort of, it just breaks your flow. Um, and I think that's really important that once you're sort of in that creative mindset and you've got that flow going to not break it in any way, just let it go, mm. you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, having every tool has a place and at the end of the week, every tool will go back into that place. Yeah. It's a good way to look at it. One of the, the, the last jobs that I've been working on was far too big for my space, which is why I almost didn't take the job because it was, I knew it was going to be tricky. And I had two big jobs going at once and it got to the point where a glue bottle, and I, I remember this because this, this was a, a particular moment where I said, right, now I need to stop and I need to tidy my shop. <laughs> I, I tried about three times. You know, you're working and you, you have a tool and you, you put it down. You're not looking, you just put it down. And it landed on the edge of something and fell off. So I picked it up and I put it somewhere else and it landed on the edge of something. There was so much stuff all over my bed. I couldn't even put something down. And as you say, that just, I, I think at that point it went flying across the workshop and then I just said, no, that's it. I, I need to tidy because that workflow, broken, yeah. gone. Yeah. Yeah. So Nick, what are you working on at the moment? Uh, right now I'm building a, um, like a work table. I believe it's for an artist in their studio. Um, it's essentially just a Tasmanian oak table, uh, two meters by a meter. Um, and it has a Corian inset top. So it sits cool. inside like a timber frame. And the reason for the Corian is just for a good work surface for whatever they're, what, what, what's for whatever they're doing. What's Corian again? I'm thinking core flute when you say that, but that's not it. Corian, it's like a, it almost looks like a, I don't know, like a fake marble type of thing, but it's, yeah. um, it's like, I mean, you can cut it. It's a resin, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, essentially. And you can use your sort of woodworking tools to cut it like a, you know, a sharp, fine tooth saw blade to cut it. Um, yeah, but that was supplied by the client. So all they had to do was kind of cut it to size and that was it. Yeah. Um, so that's almost done. So I'll be delivering that hopefully next week once some finishes on it. Um, and yeah, I'm also working on some like wall art kind of stuff using a burl, some round wall, wall art. Um, and this morning I was just like running some samples for a future uh, dresser drawer cabinet, hopefully with some sort of end grain padding patterns going on the drawer fronts. We'll see how we go. Yeah, I, I don't know if it works yet, so. <laughs> <laughs> what, have, what have you been working on this week, Joey? Uh, this week I've been making some carry doors for a pantry unit and um, it's going into an old villa, I guess what you guys would call a... Um, uh, oh, what do you call those houses with the deck that goes around, all the way around, like a uh, colonial? I, uh, yeah, I know what you're talking thing. about. Don't know what the name is though. One of those old, original, old 1860 type places. Um, so it's just a weird shaped corner pantry, and we're going to put like 
proper, properly made carry doors. I'm doing full mortise and tenons with wedges through um, just to kill myself for some reason. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, they looked they looked fantastic on you on uh, Instagram. Yeah, they I just put amazing. a picture up, and uh, I, was, I did it because I was like, well, I didn't think they were going to look that good, so. Uh, here's a picture mm. so I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, and the best part about that job is the client just wants to put one coat of danish oil on them to match the crappiness of the, the rest of the house because they're really old <laughs> and so yeah. she doesn't want them to look too new so i was like yeah sure one coat of oil Beautiful. thanks see you later done <laughs> yeah. jordan how about you what you uh, what have it's you been actually working quite on? quite good that we're talking about soul destroying uh, repetitive stuff because i've been working on <laughs> soul-destroying instruction manuals for the last month and a half. It's been six weeks <laughs> non-stop, but I've finished it. It's, it's now done, and uh, the last two days, I've actually been making stuff with my hands, not just clicking keyboards. <laughs> I know. It has nothing to do with what I'm meant to be doing, but, you know, it's fine. <laughs> but. So when you say they're done, is that the... Because the last time we talked to you, you were saying the text is there, it's just the formatting? So it's, is all, the of, all of that's done? The formatting's all done. Now, it's off at the editor now for the final proof. So I did change the order of a few things. Um, it just It's lucky that mm. my mother is an editor, so I don't have to, to go too far for it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's all finished. It's uploaded as a proof just for those customers that have been asking. Um, but, yes, yeah, 86 pages and couple of hundred photos and uh, all of the all of the photos you can click on and you get a further explanation and it's just it's just stupid I I shouldn't have gone so far into it but I just wanted it to be done right <laughs> so that if someone does ask me I can say look go to page 73 click on the thumbnail you'll be able to see everything in detail and, and if you change the model do you have to do a whole uh, new one? That's applicable for every board that I make up until SUPs um, because it, it outlines the differences as well. So it's like if you're working on this and this, you can skip this step um, and then it's, you know, you go two pages along uh, down the line or whatever. But I'm actually, it's, it's using my graphics degree, graphics design degree for the first time in 10 years. And it's incredible how much better this software stuff is these days. Like, <laughs> I didn't know all of the tricks when I started, so it was taking me forever. But now that I kind of got in the flow of it, like the Adobe InDesign used to be an absolute pig to work with, and now it's probably my favorite layout software. So I love it. All right, well, I've been working on nothing this week because I delivered on two things over the, the weekend. It was these boards for a wedding and this this bed with a trundle bed underneath. So this week, I'm just, we were talking about cleaning earlier. This week, all I'm doing is regaining access to certain areas of my shop again, tidying up all the corners and everything, getting it back to where it was. And I'm, I'm trying to work a little bit on organization. One thing that I've been noticing recently with a lot of the, the better performing YouTube videos is everyone's got, all those channels have very clean spaces and I think from a visual perspective when you are trying to watch something with just clutter around it it just it just it's a real negative um, point on a video so I'm really trying to get everything all those little bits into boxes 
into a nice looking cabinet and, and try and just improve that look. That's, you know, that is partly the reason my style of video making is the way it is. I tend to go quite tight on a lot of things because then I don't have to show <laughs> off all the rubbish that's on the ground right next to it and what's in the background. Because, um, you know, we've almost always got two or three jobs going and I, there's no way I'm going to get a big, wide, nice, clean shot of anything without seeing something else happening in the background that is um, going to, take your attention away so i just tend to keep as tight as i can on the, this little detail and so you it. don't like the establishing shot shot and then the close-up and then the, i try when i can but most the most of the time there's too much other stuff like i've got a half completed job right behind where i'm working and it's just going to make everything look crap if you try and do a wide shot so yeah all right, so we'll probably end it off there. What I want to do, though, is just mention a, a, a quote. I've, I've slightly paraphrased this, but I've taken this out of your about section, Nick, because I just think it's such a, such a great way to sum up what we're doing in terms of woodworking. You said mistakes happen, but the drive to succeed is more prevalent, which I just think is so, it's such a good way to look at it. You're going to start a project, you're going to make mistakes, but that drive to improve on that and succeed over that is why I guess we keep doing what we do. Yeah. So we're going to name the, yeah. the episode that. It's such a fantastic little great. saying. Very cool. <laughs> All right, thanks again, Nick, for being on the show. It was great to hear your story. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no problem. All the best for the future. It's great to finally talk to you all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you too. <laughs> to everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please go ahead and give it a rating on iTunes. That really helps us out. The Shop Store Podcast is available on iTunes and most other podcast apps, as well as YouTube. Joey and Jordan, pleasure as always. My name is Robin Lewis. Take care, everyone, and we will see you in the next one.